Good morning. We've been talking a lot today and in previous weeks about the whole subject of rejoicing. And wasn't it great to have the students lead us in a time of rejoicing? I don't know, you, it, you can't be alive if, you, if they don't make you smile when they're up here. Well, so I wanted us to take a deeper look at this whole idea of rejoicing. What is it? And how do we do it? Rejoicing in a short definition simply means to feel joy or delight, but also to express our joy and delight. So you can rejoice on the inside, on the one hand, but it's almost impossible to keep it on the inside, especially when it comes time to worshiping the Lord. It doesn't really make good sense that we would ponder the most awesome being in the universe and not say something about it. Not show it on our faces with gladness. <clears throat> I wanted us to turn to Psalm 100 today. Because that is a good psalm that tells us quite a few ways to rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 100, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. I want to invite you to look at your sermon notes real quickly. This will all make sense later on. But for now, I want you to see that the A points are going to give us six major ways that we can rejoice in the Lord. And the B points give us the reasons why we can and why we should rejoice. Then there's one other point about how or why to rejoice that isn't Specifically on the notes, I want to point out as well. Let's go to verse 1. Make a joyful noise or a joyful shout to the Lord, all the earth. The word joy, excuse me, the word shout or noise can mean either one of those. It can mean a loud sound, but it's not a, an unpleasant sound. It's the kind of sound that would rouse your attention that would get you motivated to go praise the Lord with other people. That's why several versions have translated it, make a joyful shout to the Lord. It's like a shout of, I'm doing this, I'm ready, I'm excited. Why don't you come and join me? Do you like to be invited to special events? Certainly, yes, we all do. Well, Psalm 100 is one of those invitations. Right away, right in the very first verse, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. 
The Jewish people were not really strong on evangelism for several reasons, but it does show up here and there. And this is one of those places where this is not just a psalm for Israel. The very first words are, Shout to the Lord all the earth, all you lands. Everyone is invited to to praise the Lord because the Lord is the one and only God. He's over the entire world. By the way, this shouting is not just uh, getting loud in order to be loud. It is, again, the kind of shout that one would, would utter just because he can't keep it inside. For them, and let's set this in the right context, this is an Old Testament passage, obviously. And so a verse in the Bible always means primarily what it meant to the original hearers, or to the original readers. So he's not talking in this context about shouting in the sanctuary. This would have been while they were approaching the temple, maybe even climbing the temple mount. Then they would shout as if, come on guys, we have an opportunity to worship the Lord. Let's, let's all join together and do that. The Jewish people certainly knew that God was not uh, inhabited, that he did not inhabit only the temple, that the temple could not contain him. But yet, to them, they were told that in a special way, God resided in the temple. And that's why you see such joy out of so many of the Old Testament saints when they were approaching the temple, when they were having an opportunity to worship with other people. So we are to praise the Lord with boisterous and joyous shouting. Secondly, we also rejoice in the Lord by serving and worshiping Him with gladness. Now, your version, our Bibles say, serve the Lord with gladness. Why did I add the idea of worship? Because that word can be translated serve, it can also be translated worship. The two are not distinct ideas to the Hebrew mind. To us, they are somewhat. That's why I put both words down. To them, serving was worshiping. Worshiping was serving. <clears throat> so verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness and come into His presence with singing. The New American Standard says, come before him with joyful singing. Going back to the idea that serving is worship and worship is serving. The way this word was used in the Old Testament especially was used at times when the priest would offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people. That was the upfront ministry, you might say, just as we have upfront ministry here with the song leaders, the singers, the instrumentalists, those who lead in prayer. But there are also a lot of people who don't get the upfront. Even in the Old Testament times, there were many more Jewish leaders who were to basically keep the temple clean and neat, dusted. They would sweep, clean the furniture, make sure the lamps had plenty of oil. A lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And the point I want you to make 
the point I want you to get is if that describes you, if you're one of the more behind-the-scenes players, not really up front, don't look down on yourself. Don't think that you are a second-class server of the Lord. No, to the Jewish people, it was all the same, whether up front, behind the scenes. It was all service to the Lord. It was all worship. I hope that you would take out the same idea as well, the same impression, the same reminder that even though maybe no one else sees me empty the trash or clean a chalkboard or whatever it might be, the Lord sees and He accepts that as worship. And that's why we are to do those tasks with gladness. One thing I noticed as I was studying this, though, is that gladness is not something that we generate by serving. Yes, that may happen. We may obtain joy from serving. But let's face it. Emptying the trash here is no more fun than emptying the trash at home, is it? You know, vacuuming here, teaching, whatever, doing lesson plans and all kinds of details that we need to take care of that probably almost no one else knows about, those are not necessarily producers of joy. And yet he said, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. And so what we have to conclude is that gladness and joy start with us, not with the task. We bring joy to the task. We bring gladness to the service, to the ministry. Now, let me ask you a question. Be honest. How many of you are wide awake right now? Okay, quite a few people not telling the truth. (laughs) Let's face it, when we come to church, most of us are not at our best. We haven't had our five cups of coffee like we do Monday through Friday. And yet, in an ideal sense, and what this psalm is calling us to do is to begin with joy, but to begin with that, out in the parking lot before you ever come in. And so I think it would be beneficial to each and every one of us before we get out of the the cars here in the morning on a Sunday morning that you pause and ask God to fill you with joy and that you take the time to think about things such as I'm talking about the one who has reconciled me. Talking about the God who loves me unconditionally in spite of ourselves. Some of those kinds of thoughts ought to make us smile. They ought to produce some joy in us so that when we come in to these doors, we are ready to sing with joy. We are ready to serve with gladness. So let me say it a different way. The singing we do here is not to create gladness. It's not to create our joy. It's to express it. We're to come into worship already 
having joy and gladness. Yes, the songs might even make us happier as we think about the words we're singing, but we need to have a certain amount of it that we bring to the table, so to speak, that we bring with us through the doors. Then, and really only then, can we worship and serve the Lord with gladness, sing songs of joy to Him. So the emphasis of these first two verses is clear that entrance into the presence of the Lord for worship should be characterized by genuine, heartfelt gladness and jubilation. Verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His, or and not ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. We're going to see three points under this that give us the cause for praise, at least the causes that are listed right here. First of all, because the Lord is God. Secondly, the Lord made us, therefore He owns us. And thirdly, because the Lord cares for us. God's people are to know that the Lord is God. That means to acknowledge. To It's not simply a theoretical fact that you stick away in your brain. Oh yeah, the Lord's God. Okay, got that. Now what's next? No, it is to acknowledge it. It is to grasp it. It is to wrap yourself around that idea and wrap the idea around yourself that the Lord is the only God. The Lord is consequently supreme. The word God has various ideas, but one of the most important is that He is the top. He's supreme. Just as the first of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me or besides me. We need to acknowledge that God is first in in every area of life. Yes, you hear that probably every Sunday, but it, you hear it a lot because it's true. Really, we are all theologians. We all have and some kind of idea of who God is. And one of our tasks as we go throughout life is to continually refine and improve on our understanding of who God truly is. And once we do that, and only when we do that, can we put the rest of the life of life in order. You know, as the we sang the kids sang earlier. Somebody sang earlier. The idea of is expressed in a song we did not sing today, and that is the song titled Come. Now is the time to worship. Because one day every tongue will confess that you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still, the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. The question is not, will you bow? Every single person on the planet who has ever lived will one day bow before the Lord. The question is not, will you? The question is, when will you? Will you only at the last great judgment when you are forced to? 
Or will you make the best of this life right now by acknowledging that the Lord is God and consequently filtering everything else that we say, think, and do through that truth? Well, who is the Lord? It takes an entire Bible to describe that, so there's no way I can do it justice. But I will invite you, I didn't put this in the notes, I'll invite you to listen or to turn to Exodus chapter 34. And here's a summary the Lord himself gave about who he is. Exodus 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, what that means is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Well, that's three sin words. What he's saying is, I am willing to forgive every bad thing you do. If you come to me in humble repentance and asking for my forgiveness and salvation. He said, I'm forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That is, those who don't acknowledge their sinfulness before him. Those who are guilty and the guilt remains because they don't make use of God's means of salvation. I had said earlier, the most important thing in your life is to have a right understanding of who God is. And so, consequent to that, another, essentially the same thing said another way, the most important thing in your life is to make sure you're constantly reinforcing the truths about who God is, but also that you're constantly learning who He is what He is like. And we do that by reading His Word, finding out the things He said, the things He did, and sometimes why He did them, sometimes why He didn't do certain things. The Lord is supreme and there should be no competition in our lives for who is number one. Secondly, He made us. He's our Creator. He, it is He who has made us and not we ourselves. Or it is He who has made us and therefore we are His. Think of it, if you're in art class, the school is donated to you, art supplies and paper, and you then get to create whatever masterpiece you want to create. At the end of class, nobody has the right to carry your painting out, do they? Because you created it. It's yours. In fact, it would probably not cross the, the minds of anyone to go up and say, yours is mine. That just doesn't make sense. If you create something, you own it. The Lord created us, therefore He owns us. But in, in addition to that, if you are His child, the Lord redeemed you. He bought you. Out of the penalty and of sin and of condemnation. And so, in a sense, he doubly owns us. And it only would make sense to us 
that we spend the remainder of our lives keeping him number one. And you know, there's nothing I think that would change, that would help the world improve any better than this one recognition that the Lord is God and we aren't. That the Lord is God, and you want to know what He likes, what He prioritizes, what He dislikes? He's given it to us in His Word. It's just up to us to read it, to grasp it, and to live it out. Thirdly, we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Those aren't just nice words. What that means is He cares. For us. I may have put in the notes, he doesn't just care about us, you know, like from a distance. He cares for us. He provides for our needs. He loves us and he's provided the greatest for the greatest need we have, which is our sinfulness and our need for salvation. He loves us that much that he has taken care of all of our needs. And yes, He provides in different ways for different people, and sometimes not on our time schedule. Okay, probably never on our time schedule. But He is the shepherd. He's taking care of the sheep. We need to be able to trust Him that He knows what He's doing. One verse I love that sums up this idea is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with giving us Him, graciously, freely give us all things? Fourthly, all worshipers are invited to come to the Lord with thanksgiving and with praise because He's good, loving, and faithful. And we do that by, I'll go ahead and give you the blanks, number one, entering His presence with thanksgiving and praise. Secondly, giving thanks to Him. It's kind of like the psalmist ran out of new words. So he just said thanksgiving at the first part of the verse, and then he says it again. Giving thanks to Him, number two. Number three, blessing and praising His name. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Really isn't much new in this verse that he hasn't already said and emphasized. I just want to point out again, this is an old written in the Old Testament to Old Testament believers. So none of us passed through a gate on our way in here today. None of us entered into courts, which are like hallways. So we always need to look at a verse in its context, where it is, understand it there. And then and only then can we bring it into our time. They were to be praising, thanking, as I mentioned earlier, and as the psalmist mentioned earlier, right at the very beginning. And so here he says it again. When you come into his courts, Already be praising. Already be full of thankfulness. By the way, if 
our president, not this time, but a couple presidents back. His name, first name was Barack. He spelled it B-A-R-A-C-K. It may help you to remember that the word blessing here translates the as we transliterated into English, it would be spelled B-A-R-A-K. Pronounced the same, Barak, but spelled slightly differently. Perhaps that will help you remember. If you hear Barack Obama's name, let it be a reminder that we can take the opportunity to bless our Lord, to praise His name. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. I want you to pay attention. I'm going to read it out of three different Bible versions. Listen to the changes or the differences. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. This is the ESV. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. King James, for the Lord is good. His mercy Instead of steadfast love, His mercy is everlasting. And His truth, where the ESV has faithfulness, His truth endureth to all generations. The New American Standard, For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting. And His faithfulness to all generations. That first word is translated steadfast love, mercy, and loving kindness. The reason why is this word appears all over the Old Testament. It has to do with God's faithfulness and uh, promise that he will live according to and he will carry out his covenant promises and plans with the people of Israel and ultimately with the entire nation. Back in Genesis 12, the Lord blessed Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a blessing and ultimately you're going to bless the entire world. What he was getting at was that through Abraham and through the Jewish people would ultimately come the Messiah, the one who would die for our sins and in that way bless the entire world. But that, as you can imagine, that is a huge idea and how to put it into a one or two English words is very difficult. Years back, someone did a PhD dissertation on this word and at least the story I heard was that as a result, his dissertation was four or five times longer than they really would like you to have. That his dissertation went about a thousand pages or so. Why? Because it is such a rich word. And ever since then, scholars really did a, had their eyes open to the fact that this one little word is so full of meaning. Let me just say those words again. His steadfast love. He's not going to give love today, take it away tomorrow. It's steadfast. It's steady. It endures forever. He is faithful or truthful to his promises. The King James where it has truth would be a good idea. What's meant there is his truthfulness. That is, he's made promises. He's going to carry them out. He's going to be faithful to what he said. And loving kindness, I think some of the English translators may have made that word up somewhere in the deep past because, and it's good, but it in no way fully captures this idea. So 
I invite you to, at least with verse 5, read it in various translations and you'll begin to get a little bit more of the rich idea that's presented there. But let's keep the main idea in mind that that love He has for us will always endure. The promises He's made, He will be faithful to them forever. Consequently, we find in this verse that we are to praise God because He's good, because His love will never end, and because He will be faithful, dependable, trustworthy to His promises forever. Let me invite you to close your eyes and open your hearts and mind in prayer. Shall we pray? Our Father, we will spend eternity praising you and thanking you for your rich, rich love for us. Our words are just so inadequate, it seems, and even this psalm writer ran out of new words to express ways to worship and to praise you. Father, thank you that you are such a God as that. Thank you that you've opened our eyes to that. Thank you for giving us your word that we can know and understand you better. And Father, I just pray you will excite within the heart and mind and life of each and every one of us to, in a new way from this moment forward, be willing and ready to praise your name, to give you thanks, to bless you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.